Every uh, quarter or so, the PCA, which is our denomination, sends out a newsletter talking about church planting. And in that newsletter, they will spotlight a certain area of the country to talk about what the Lord is doing. And this fall, they are spotlighting Tulsa. And when I came here in 2011, there were two churches in Tulsa, Christ Pres and River Oaks. And many of you were faithful attenders and members of Christ Pres. Some of you were faithful members and attenders from River Oaks. And they graciously sent the people who lived in Owasso up here to start a new church. And I had the great privilege of being your pastor for that. But since 2011, we've also planted churches out of our church, haven't we? We've planted Grove up at Grand Lake in 2015. And today at 4, uh, 3.30, I'm going to lead a new members class up in Bartlesville where there are, you know, on a given Sunday night, 60 to 80 people that are joining for worship there. It's a pretty phenomenal thing to watch how the Lord has worked. And He doesn't just work through Trinity, although He has. He continues to work through River Oaks, which has planted Ethos Presbyterian Church in Midtown. And we are about to plant a church in North Tulsa with a young man named Caleb Long. It's going to be called New City Fellowship, a multicultural, multiracial church that's going to be on the north side of North Tulsa around MLK and the Peoria area. But some of you will see yourselves in these pictures. And um, you remember when you joined the church, many of you said, I don't mind if people use my picture. Well, we did. And um, thanks for that. I saw kiddos that were talking in the corner uh, earlier going, oh my gosh, this thing goes all the way around the world. And I'm in it. So yes, kiddos, some of you are in it. And uh, it's a pretty remarkable thing what the Lord's doing in Tulsa. So I'm going to pray for our sister churches, if you don't mind, just for a moment. And would you join me in doing so? Father, we thank you for the way that you have used gospel-centered churches since the very beginning of you calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. First with Israel, then in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Lord, you've particularly worked in this time in history in Tulsa, Oklahoma, through the vigorous planting of churches. And Lord, I thank you for our brothers and sisters who are worshiping right now in South Tulsa and in Midtown and in North Tulsa at Crossover Bible Church before they launch their new church, which will be a PCA church. And we pray for Raul Bermudez in East Tulsa at Pacto de Gracia that you will bless them as they worship. And we pray, Father, that every gospel-preaching church, both in our denomination and across town in Owasso, that you will bless, that you will be with Chris Wall at First Baptist this morning as he preaches, that you will be with Chuck Horton at the Methodist Church as he preaches, that you will be with Discovery and their new pastor as he preaches, that you will be at Freedom as Andrew preaches, Lord, that you would allow the gospel to go forth with power and simplicity so that what people walk out of their churches seeing is not a technique, but a person. So Jesus, would you renew our hearts, we pray. Thank you that we are not alone in church planting. Thank you that you are using Trinity and you are using other churches to spread your gospel. A dream 20 years ago people could only imagine. Thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn to page 10 of your bulletin or lower your eyes to the text. I'll read Luke 24 beginning at verse 13 going down to verse 35. 
you would, let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with him went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going, he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took bread, and he blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's a beautiful resurrection passage. How do we change? I don't mean like a weed. I mean like a California redwood, like a sequoia. How do we change deeply and profoundly, lastingly, in a satisfying way? How do we change? This year, many of you know, I turned 40. I'm resisting Mike Gundy references right now. Thank you. I turned 40, and though that's very young, when you're 40, it seems very old. And what's, I still struggle with sins that I struggled with when I was six. There are idols that I still struggle with. 
How do we change? You know, the Bible deals with that question a lot. And it teaches us that change comes not by a technique that we master. We are technologically oriented people. But change, real change for you and for me does not come from a technique that we master, but it comes from a relationship that we allow to master us. Last week we saw that God's ordained means of your growth is not merely growing smarter or more knowledgeable about doctrine or about Scripture. God's ordained means of growth is to confront you with Himself. And God has given by His Holy Spirit the means for us, the normal, ordinary means, what we call means of grace, to help you change lastingly and in a satisfying manner. And He does that through His Word, through the sacraments, and through prayer. And last week we said that it's not more knowledge that you need. It is Him as He's revealed in His Word. And today we're going to take one more opportunity to think about God's Word and how it changes you. We read the Bible. Many of us have read it since we were little children. We've grown up in the church, and we come away from the text confused and frustrated that we have not changed. So let's look at it. In Luke 24, Jesus reveals to us a very, very uh, simple uh, question that I want to pose to you. If we read the Bible and we study it and we know it and we memorize it and we are people of the Word, why doesn't it change us? And this text gives us three reasons, at least three reasons, that I want to look at with you together. Why does the Bible change us? Three reasons. Look at verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Why doesn't this happen to us? They started off confused and dazed and frustrated and they ended with their hearts burning. Why? Three reasons. Reason number one, we don't really listen to it. We only listen partly to it. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe. Now, when Jesus says foolish, he's, this isn't a compliment. You know, Proverbs 8, 18.2 says that a fool does not understand. He only listens to his own opinion. You know anyone like that? Like, do you know someone who loves to hear their own opinion? Oh, I love, I thank you for your opinion, but I love my opinion. I love what I think about everything. You know somebody like that? It's hard to have a relationship with that person, isn't it? Because they're, you're not really confronting each other. Like the person has already got his guns loaded. Proverbs 18:2. It's like a paraphrase. It's a, a fool doesn't listen. Might be a paraphrase. Or if they do listen, they've already determined in their heart what they're going to do, despite whatever you may tell them. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding. And the disciples had done this. They had foolishly concluded what they were going to conclude despite what Jesus is saying to them. They had been thrown off by Jesus' crucifixion, and they had written off everything that Jesus had said about his suffering right out of their de facto Bibles. They took it out. It just, it wasn't even there. They had no categories for understanding a suffering Savior. 
They only wanted a military one. There's a friend of mine um, who is somewhat of a mentor to me when I was up in New Jersey as a, a minister, and his, his grand, he tells the story about his grandmother who um, didn't like certain parts of the Bible, and so she had this special red pen. And while she would highlight some with a, you know, with a highlighter, she had a special red pen, and she would underline those parts of the Bible that she did not like. And so, like, for example, in Psalm 139 that we looked at several weeks ago, when she got to verse 19, where it talks about God's holiness, it says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. And in her Bible is a big red X. <laughs> now, we wouldn't be so crass as to put a big red X through passages of our Bible that we don't like, but we do it all the time. We prefer those passages in Scripture that talk about forgiveness and that talk about love and that talk about God's love for His people. But that wrath and judgment stuff, we put big red X's through. Oh, we may not do it physically, but we do it in our minds. We think murder, for example. We think murder. We think about deliberate and specific murder. And there are few people that have ever committed murder in this room, but every one of us have done it with our tongues. When we prefer to think about, you know, when Osama bin Laden was alive or when some despot or Kim Jong-un, we say, fry them. We have no problem writing off murder toward those that we don't like, but we don't often think about the way that we murder with our own mouth. We prefer those passages that talk about gossip, which is just a slow form of suffocation by the tongue. We, prefer those pas- we, we don't prefer those passages, rather, that talk about pride, which is basically putting others down and lifting ourselves up. We don't prefer those passages that talk about greed because money is just too much of an idol for us. No, we prefer those bold passages, the ones about adultery, about murder. But friends, Jesus does not let you do that. He holds high those passages. In fact, you can't really have a personal relationship with Jesus unless you believe those passages you have the most trouble with. Because Jesus wants to confront you, even with the difficult parts of Scripture that are hard for you to believe. My brother, um, a couple weeks ago, uh, had a 50th birthday, and we were, we were uh, fishing together in Louisiana, and we were talking about all the TV shows that came out when we were young. And my, my uh, dad and brother, my brother was born in 1967, and they were thinking about Star Trek, which I think started the year before or something like that. And they were talking about this episode um, it was called I Mud in the second uh, season of Star Trek. And it's a story about a man um, whose name is Hartcourt Felton Mud. They called him Harry Mud. And Harry Mud was a scientist. And he was tired of being a scientist on Earth. And so he created a colony full of beautiful women that did exactly what he said. I mean, most of them are beautiful, and he, 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 they would do what he said. He made one just like his wife, and all he had to do whenever she started nagging him is he just had to say, Hah! shut up, and she would stop. And so when Kirk and Spock, of course, get to this island, and they see, you know, Harry Mudd, it, what they realize is that all these people were robots. He had created robots to do exactly what he said, and while Harry longed for a utopia 
it's, you know, the, the, the whole episode's kind of stupid, but it's interesting because it makes a good illustration for Luke 24. You can't, like, you can't have a relationship with a robot. And slowly this utopia begins to crumble for Harry Mudd. And, and some of you come to the Bible like it's a robot, like you want it to tell you exactly what you want it to tell you, to reaffirm your values. But that's not what Christianity is about. It is not a technique that you master. Luke 24 is not about the disciples' new inductive Bible study. It is about meeting the risen Christ and letting him boldly confront you with those passages of Scripture that I, that you, have such a hard time believing. And the reason why we are not changed by the ordinary means of grace of his preached word is because we do not listen to it. And you know what it's like if you've ever developed a relationship with someone who doesn't listen. It's not a relationship. It's a contract. There's no relationship. There's no personal relationship. It's a sterile business contract. And Jesus is not in the business of making contracts. He wants to make relationships because he wants to know you. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this great quote where he says that God loves the real world, not the ideal world. And he loves the real you, not the ideal you. He loves you with the messiness of your life, the parts that you're embarrassed to talk about to your community group. He loves that part of you. He knows it. And he wants to confront you to the depth of your core with him. Oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We don't listen. And when we don't listen, we don't change. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, as Brad read earlier, as we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord, as we see his face, we are transformed. Or 1 John 3, we will be transformed because we shall see him as he is. Reason number one that the word of God does not change you, does not change me, is because we do not listen to it. We only listen partly to it. Reason number two, we're blind. We have a hearing problem and we have a seeing problem. We're blind to the help that we really need. In Jesus' words, we are slow of heart to believe. Look down at verse 18 with me. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, because we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him they did not see. I want you to notice something very striking in particular about what I just read to you. All of the facts are there. 
There's not a detail of the resurrection that's left out. All the data was in. Michael Wilcox, in his commentary on Luke, writes, Read again the gospel according to Cleopas in Luke 19 through 24. There is the ministry of Jesus in word and deed, the crucifixion which completed it, and the hope of redemption which filled it with meaning. There is the conquered grave, and there is the apostolic witness to that. They had all the facts. Isn't that interesting? They had all the data. And yet, they were confused, and they were depressed, and they were despondent. They were walking away from Jerusalem. They were walking away from hope. They were walking away from the gospel. And even when Jesus walked alongside them and their fellow believers, they still didn't get it. Are you with me? Do you hear me? They were walking along the dusty road together with Christ in the flesh, and they still didn't hear him because they were blind. Why? What happened? A miracle happened. A miracle happened such that they ran back to Jerusalem in the danger that that journey would have been for them into the city, perhaps to the upper room while all of the disciples were waiting, and they told them what had happened to Jesus. Why did they have such an emphatic and dramatic change of heart? Because a miracle had happened. Their eyes were opened. It says it uh, twice. It says in two ways that they had their eyes open. They had seen the scriptures. Verse 32, they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us? There's the title to the sermon. Our hearts burn within us while they talked with us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures. And secondly, not only did they see the scriptures, but they saw Jesus. Verse 30 and 31, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. John Wesley was a very, very religious man in the 18th century and he was a missionary, as many of you know, to the Americas, to the, to the 13 colonies um, in particular. And he writes an account that I want to read for you um, in his journals, and if, if, you're, um, if you're a Methodist and you would, you would know this story, at least you would know part of it. Listen to this account from May 24th, 1738. In the evening, I went very unwillingly <laughs> to a society at Aldersgate Street. He went to a Bible study very unwillingly. He was a religious man. He knew that this is what he should do. He didn't really want to go, but he did because that's what religious people do where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And about a quarter of nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. There it is, Methodists. There's the phrase you will often hear and know. And I felt I did not trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And there an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Listen, notice that he wasn't even reading the Bible. William Holland, the Bible teacher, was reading a preface to a commentary. Three steps removed, and yet that was still enough. And his heart was changed. Lifeless. Wesley knew the Bible far more than I probably ever will, even as a young man. And yet there he was, lifeless. 
You can be an extraordinary Bible scholar and be dead because you know all the facts, and yet you've never encountered him. Verse 25, our hearts began to burn within us as he opened the Scriptures. This is the supernatural, invasive ministry of his Holy Spirit to Cleopas and to us. It is his ordinary means of grace. Cleopas had words directly from the mouth of Christ, and today we have the preached word. It is meant to change you. But we have a seeing problem and we have a hearing problem. What am I trying to say in all of this? Basically, what I'm trying to say is that seeing Jesus in Scriptures requires a miracle. And if you do not see him, you will not get it. You will be 35 years old like Wesley and just begin to understand the risen Christ. The Bible will be opaque and it will be dry as the dusty road was to Emmaus. You will be confused. You will have a quiet time and walk away frustrated because you have not encountered him. So what's the lesson here for us? It's very simple. We must be desperate. Are you desperate this morning? I don't mean are you seeking a technique. I mean are you desperate to see him? Are you desperate for Jesus to confront you? Are you willing to let him have his way with you? Are you willing to let him confront you face to face through his word and to challenge you? Or, like a fool, have you already made up your opinion and you're just coming here for the sake of your children? He wants to change you. And he intends to do that, friends, through the preaching of his word. It is a means of grace. It is a mysterious work of his Holy Spirit to make our hearts burn within us. And if you're not seeing Jesus in the Scriptures, well, friends, maybe you're not desperate enough. And I pray that he makes you desperate in ways other than suffering. But I pray for your good that he will bring you to the place where you know that you cannot come to the Bible and just try to gain a new technique of Bible study, that you come to the Bible and you see him. Jesus taught them about himself in all the Scriptures. We come to the Bible for many, many good purposes, many, many good reasons. We come to the Bible to get advice. I come to the Bible to get advice. We come to the Bible for comfort, yes. We, I come to the Bible for comfort, particularly in the Psalms as we looked at through the summer. We come to the Bible to learn more doctrine or maybe to pass a theological exam. Yes, that's great. Elders, deacons, you need to study before you take those exams to be officers in Christ's church. Sometimes we study the Bible in order to get God to, be, to approve of us. Or sometimes we study the Bible because we want to make fun of it. Like we study the Bible for all kinds of different reasons. And all those reasons except for the last two are good reasons. But if you don't come to the Bible, even with those good reasons that I mentioned, and be desperate to be changed by it, it will just be dry as dust. Which is why many, many people who go in seminary they have like this, uh, they need to take a break from the Bible because somewhere they felt the pressure of performance of grades and it has zapped the Bible of power because they've stopped seeing Jesus and they've only seen data. We have a hearing problem, we're slow of heart to believe. We have a seeing problem, our eyes are blind. And thirdly, we're looking for the wrong thing. In terms of priority, we are looking for the wrong thing a good bit of the time. 
The Bible is full of very good things. It's full of history. It's full of poetry. It's full of law, advice, proverbs, character studies that I've just alluded to. But the whole purpose of the whole Bible is according to 2 Timothy 3.15 so that through faith in Jesus, please hear me, through faith in Jesus and his work on the cross that we may live to make you wise unto salvation. And Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5.39 that you seek to study the scriptures, that by studying them you might find eternal life. But you have not begun to understand them because in seeking them you have missed that they're about me. And oh, church in Owasso, Oklahoma, you have ceased to see Jesus because you have ceased to see that every jot and tittle is about the risen Savior. Amen? It's how he changes us. Verse 26 and 27, look at it. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. Verse 30 and 31. When he was at that time with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and then he vanished from their sight. What did those two texts tell us? Very interestingly enough, it tells us that if you want to see Jesus, do you know where you must look? You must not look at his triumph. You must not look at his ascension. You must look where? At his suffering. Isn't that interesting? Jesus' own exposition of the scriptures begin and ends with his suffering. And the disciples, when they saw him breaking the bread, whoa. I get it. His body that was broken for me. And the key to understanding Jesus in all of Scripture is his sufferings. In verse 35, it says, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. It wasn't until Jesus talked about his sufferings that he disappeared from their sight. Did you notice that? Again, what I'm trying to get at here, friends, is that there are a good many reasons to come to the Bible. All of those good reasons, if you make them in priority before seeing Jesus and his sufferings, you will not see Jesus. But when you begin to see that Jesus suffered for you, that he knew your name, that he on the cross took upon himself your sin, only then will your hearts begin to burn within you. Otherwise, what are you doing here? We're just wasting time. The Bible will become dry as dust for you. And what we need is we need to have our hearts strangely warmed like Wesley week after week after week by seeing him because we have a problem. We don't listen to it. We have a second problem. We're blind to it. We need to be desperate. And lastly, we need to recognize that we look for the wrong thing in it. And we will walk away from studying the Bible and from church and be guilt-ridden and worn out Jonathan Edwards, many of you know, Jonathan Edwards was one of the seminal figures in what we now call the Great Awakening. He was a pastor up in the Northeast, um, and Edwards writes on one account this excerpt. Please listen to it. He says, once I rode into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place as my custom commonly had been. 
to walk in divine contemplation and prayer, and I had a view that was for me extraordinary. I saw the glory of the Son of God as the mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. And this grace had appeared so calm and so sweet, appeared also great above all thoughts and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour. This kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and the weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated. That's, that's what we need. And that language sounds weird to us in 2017, but that's what we need. And that's what the Spirit of God through the preaching of His Word promises to do. Do you hear it? Do you see him? Are you looking for the right thing? Now, I'm going to close, but I want to close with a warning and then some really, really good news. And the warning is this. The warning is that your heart and my heart are technologically oriented. And we come to church and we look for techniques and so you're going to be tempted to walk out of here and say, I've got three new techniques for my new inductive Bible study. Number one, I need to listen. Number two, I need to ask for help. I need to be desperate. And number three, I need to look for Jesus. But if you try these new techniques, and that's all that you try, you try to plug and play them in without being in His presence, without longing for Him. Friends, Reading Scripture will be dry as dust to you. And if you walk out of here with an overinflated sense of expectation, saying, now I've got it. Now I know how to read the, uh, Jesus and all of Scripture. And you're going to be cured of all of your dry, dusty Bible reading. And in three hours, you're going to see him amazing. You'll never read the Bible again. Listen, I've got some beachfront property in Miami. I will sell you. That's not the way it works. This is a lifetime pattern of reading the gospel in the whole of Scripture. It is part of the routine of the ordinary warp and wolf of your life. This is not something that changes in three hours, which is why God's means of grace intends to change you because you come to worship week after week. You see Him again. You take the Lord's table and you're nourished again. You pray. You're strengthened in your faith in Him again. Children, please hear me. What we are helping you learn to do is not, we are not just trying to help shape your moral character, although we want to do that. We are trying to help you recognize patterns and rhythms of your life, teenagers, that you will carry on with you all the days of your life, far after you graduate from high school. And if you leave here with three techniques, this will not be good news. It'll be a gimmick, and it will exhaust you. And the good news is this, that Jesus knows how susceptible we are to systems. He knows our hearts are prone toward technology and systems and all that stuff. And he loves us despite all of that. In fact, the very point of this story is that he loves us despite the fact that we try to use Jesus in ways to suit our own desires. And he loves us despite that. And the irony here is that when Jesus comes to these people and he says to them, 
you know, they say, do you not know what happened in Jerusalem? Jesus says, what things? And they said in Greek, you, the you is emphasized. Where did you come from? I mean, where have you been? And the irony, the passage is that on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is the only one who has a clue what has just happened in Jerusalem. The disciples don't even have a clue what he has just gone through from then. I mean, if I was Jesus, man, if they would have asked me that, I would have been like, it would have been like the coolest light show they've ever seen, fireworks. I mean, Jesus would have said to them, I've been to hell and back. And just recently I was praying about something that I was, um, I was mad about and I was frustrated by. And, and um, man, Jesus could have just said, Blake, come on. Don't you know? Don't you have a clue? Haven't I taught you? But he didn't respond that way to me. He responded gently. He said, Blake, I love you in your anger. And I want to shape your anger to be right anger. And I love you in your frustration. And I want to mold that so that it is shaped like me. Jesus was gentle to the disciples. Notice he didn't just reveal himself to them all at once, did he? That would have blown their socks off. But he revealed himself to them gently in the scriptures and gave him more and more and more of himself until finally he broke bread in the presence and in the breaking of the bread another means of grace. They got it. The word of God preached intends to change you. But if you don't look for Jesus, it will not change you. How do we change? We do not change through a technique that we master, but we are changed by relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ who speaks to us in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells our hearts. And when we allow that relationship to master us, then we're changed. How about you? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to not be changed by gimmicks or techniques, but that we will be changed through your means of grace as we are confronted with your presence in your word. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would so confront us with our need for you that you would make us desperate and yet bold. Father, we pray that you will help us because we are more desperate than we want to admit. And I pray for any of those who are here who have never been desperate, never seen their sin as it is, never seen the beauty of their Savior's love for them and dying for them on the cross, that you might open their heart to believe now, that the scales might fall from their eyes and they may see you our only hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.